Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Good afternoon. I am Madam Adams, Cindy Adams, the New York Post. I'm in it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and I have been since George Washington was there. And I am now about to, I'm about to get cranky. Listen, I want to talk about Donald. Not everybody wants to talk about Donald. You may not agree with me. You may be somebody who's all the way to the left. That is your problem. This is what I want to say. I am allowed and I am entitled. Donald, he was born in New York. He lives in New York. He works in New York. He's the most famous man in the world. He trumps them all. Understand, this is me saying what I want to say. Barely a breath after civilization attempted to devastate him with its worst, most hideous, unbelievable judgment. Who else could sit on TV live, calm, collected, and state, quote, success is my vengeance? Yeah, Donald talks. Why? Because he can. He can say that Icky Nicky hasn't quit shuffling around the presidential race because she doesn't know how to get out of it. He talks of migrant crime. He says our country is on a communist track. He mentions Alexei Navalny, adding, the other side is now also trying to damage me just so they can win an election. He called Nancy Pelosi a disgrace. Again, I'm saying, you don't have to agree with me. This is me talking. I cannot stand Biden. I have no choice. It has to be Donald. He avoided mentioning how the White House is covering a stumbling, fumbling, bumbling, disoriented specter who once hid in his own basement and can't put his own tongue together. I re-quote professional pollster Frank Luntz, who I had on the air, the air the other day. This is his identical quote. He said, and he's on all television shows giving his opinions. He said, Biden is weak. Biden is not the same today that he was four years ago. Why? Because he wasn't even the same then four years ago. According to the pollster Frank Luntz, Biden was sleazy. He knew well how to work the system, but he had no ability. He never accomplished anything. I'm going on. A senator, 36 years. Biden's accomplishments have never had any huge scrapbook to show for it, except for what he and his kin might have done that it's allegedly, possibly, could be not so good to show off about, maybe. He didn't attack Kamala because, as even Mars, 
Uranus, and Jupiter know there is nothing inside Kamala to attack. After Laura Graham's interview, Jesse Waters' Fox News program then aired another D.C. brain, Bernie Sanders, who barked, babbled, and again puked. These are the choices you have in the world to elect. So who is running America? Jerseys Menendez, whose home hid cash piles that are higher than the pyramids? Biden's badly dressed wife, who has become a puppeteer with long peroxided teenager hair, who sits and gives the husband signals and directions? How about the son, who once upon a crime said, Computer? What computer? And ours is not to reason why. Ours is just to interrogate and try to learn how Biden's elder and could-be savvier brother James explains how a mid-level earner family got to be high-level millionaires. Following this TV interview, a news photog wrote to the Internet about Rex Tillerson, our former Secretary of State, a Bachelor of Science grad who formerly was CEO of ExxonMobil, and he said, Rex Tillerson was correct. The president is an effing moron, and he spelled out the word effing. Again, I say, don't turn me off. This is what I want to say. You can say anything you like to say. I don't care who you vote for. This is all I want to say. We know Trump cannot spout wings. However, could be said that in his profession, real estate, the arithmetic of real estate, since the days we roomed in caves, has long had a, calci a calculus all its own. Oh, that is what I wanted to say. Now I want to tell you another story. This is a local story, in case you didn't read the New York Post, which I wrote it about. Here's a story that happened in Connecticut. Forget sniffing pot around New York's cathedrals. Nearby, in Uppity, Connecticut, exists a Methodist church where it is shove the donations and stuff the Hail Marys. Forget a buck in the basket. Its religious reverend was hustling junk. Last week, this pastor got arrested. I knew about it, and I wrote about it. He is age 63. His name is the Reverend Herbert Irving Miller. He has prayed in that church since July. Forget Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, Cleric Herbie was selling drugs almost from the altar. He had packages of crystal meth. Clientele called it speed or ice or dunk or no-dose or white cross. I mean, 
talk of a happy last summer. Supper. Supper. Talk last summer. Supper. My teeth don't fit. United Methodist Church hierarchy called it a shock to the community. Yeah, like no kidding. Undercover guys, I wrote about it, pulled him over on South Main Street. They colored his worship, hustling the actual stuff from a car, a pew away from the church. Inside it, drugs. All kinds of stuff in rock and liquid form with a hypodermic needle also there. The car, it had no registration, no insurance. Besides charged with possession and intent to sell drugs, he operated an illegal motor vehicle. This is a reverend. He has since been jailed. He was released on $10,000 bond. This padre listed his actual home address as the rectory. His court appearance is the 23rd. All I can tell you at the minute is Herbie the Rev is no longer an elder in this United Methodist Church. Look, I knew about this because my friends live in the town of Woodbury, where the church is. So I know this church. I know the town. Its main drag is famous. It is a mile of well-known antique stores on both sides of Main Street. There exist flea markets, open Saturdays, curbside sales, free parking, personal delivery, rent a space for $30, in and out 24-7. It is New York City's decorators, designers, buyers, artists, fashionistas, homeowners, collectors, specialists, and strangers. And until last Friday, a minister who was hustling junk. Okay, I can go on to some other little nice bits of stuff. But now, since I'm talking about ratty things, I'll talk about something that's quite wonderful, that you should know that there is Rental News, an organization called Zillow. Their website can now unload how much your neighbor's house is worth, and they just appraised the White House. Their estimate for the White House, 466166 dollars. No change. It has what they called selling points. Really? The White House has selling points. It is landscaped, 18 acres, hold your own Easter egg rump, 132 rooms, 35 johns, 28 fireplaces, pool, bowling alley, movie theater, and ashtray for Hunter. And not yet a teardown. So before I go on to anything else, let me just give you the definition of a White House meeting. 
a White House meeting is a group of politicians who individually can do zero, but as a group, they can meet and decide that absolutely nothing can be done. That's only in the United States of America, kids. Only in the United States of America. I love my country. I love my city. I love what God represents. I love this country. I do not love what is happening to it. And so if you tune in periodically, you will hear me bitch and moan. I am on every Sunday from 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock. And if you don't like me, and if you send in notes, I will understand. But I will still have a big mouth again next Sunday from 2 to 3. And now we are going into a station break, and then I am coming back with the head of the United Teachers Union, Randy Weingarten. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Talk Radio 77 WABC. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Okay, I am now about to speak with Randy Weingarten. She is president of the American Federation of Teachers, and you read about her and hear about her all the time whenever it comes to schools. If you listen closely, you may learn something. So, we all read about Randy Weingarten. Every 10 minutes, she's in the newspapers. Tell me, who is Randy Weingarten? Where were you born? Parents, schooling, what? So, you know, I'm a middle-class kid from Jewish parents whose parents, whose, so my, and whose, where my grandparents, you know, immigrated from Eastern Europe to get away from uh, communism and to get away from uh, totalitarianism. And so, you know, it wasn't the, it wasn't the generation um, uh, you know, in the aftermath of World War II or right before World War II, but it was the generation 
They came to America because America provided opportunity, you know, right at the turn of the century. And my grandfather was a, uh, my mother's father um, uh, uh, was um, in medical school. He knew seven languages, came to America, and he became a, a shopkeeper, um, had a dress store for you know, 40, 50 years in Nyack, New York. And my mother was a school teacher. And on my father's side, um, they were, my grandparents were merchants and, you know, trying to get a middle-class life. And my father was an electrical engineer. So I'm a kid that's, you know, very similar to so many other kids of my generation and of the generation beforehand where our parents worked hard and played by the rules and, you know, wanted their kids to be in the middle class. And they themselves were in the middle class because of the work they did and, you know, what they tried to do through public schools, public education, public higher education. And that's who I am, Cindy. Okay, so how did Randy Weingarten get from that into doing what you do? Because you're in the papers every day of your life. This is a long walk from what your parents did. How did you get into doing what you do? Well, it's about understanding um, that ladder of opportunity and patriotism and that if you actually get a decent education, you can have opportunity. But, you know, it's not for most of us who are born with silver spoons in our mouths. You got to have your shot, as uh, Luis Miranda said or Lynn Miranda said in uh, Hamilton. And you need to actually have a labor movement or, you know, that kind of collective association, that kind of community to help you get that shot. So what I realized early on is that, you know, the way in which regular folks can have the opportunity that anyone in America deserves is through education and through unions. And that's you know, what I got involved in. And, you know, ultimately, a lot of people see me and think about me politically. But frankly, politics is only a means to an end. And the end is having a better life for families. The end is making sure that you can be who you want to be, making sure you have the freedom to live and the freedom to learn and economic security that 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 you can buy a house and, a, and have a family in a place in which you work. Randy. That you can have a vacation. I, I have to That's ask I a to question. I, <laughs> I have to ask a question. I don't understand the education system today. A friend of mine had a 15-year-old boy, and he gave his mother a piece of letter to read. And she says, why don't you read it? He was 15. He said, I can't read cursive. What? Is that happening with our elementary system? So, you know, that that's a big question, Cindy, because all of that could be there's, frankly, the big powerhouses in tech don't ever want to have tech um, for their young kids because sometimes, you know, we read so much in terms of what's written in our smartphones and things like that, we can't actually read cursive anymore. So some of that is some of that is attributed to that. But I think what's really happened is that we don't spend enough time in not in early elementary, but also 
for kids who have come to this country in middle school or high school, we don't spend enough time focused on the basics and focused on how we help kids acculturate, how we help kids feel welcome. And part of feeling welcome is also really mastering um, some of the basics. And one of the basics, more than any other basic, is literacy, learning and feeling confident about learning to read, learning to write, learning to be able to um, navigate um, relationships and conversations and even conflict. And if we did that more, like you, look, you and I used to have when we grew up, citizenship classes. We don't have that anymore. We have other... Civics. We had civics, too. Civics. Civics. citizen. And, And look, I'm a civics teacher. But what happens is when everything is focused on test scores, test scores, test scores, and data, 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 and you show me in the next two days, you know, that you see improvement, as opposed to how do we help kids actually thrive? And so this kind of sense of what is it? What are the basics? that we need kids to be able to do. And, okay. and I think that, 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 that we, don't, we don't spend enough time on not only relationship building, but on literacy itself. Okay, and I got 8 million questions. I have a solution for it. I got 8 million things that I have to ask Good. you before you hang up on me. I don't know what to ask you first. What is it? Cindy, Cindy what? would I ever hang up on you? No, thank God, before we have dinner. No, not maybe <laughs> exactly. after dinner, but not before. <laughs> tell us, nah. tell somebody simple Never. like me, what the hell is a charter school? So I know probably none of your listeners would actually know the history of charters. But Al Shanker, one of my predecessors at the UFT and the AFT, was one of the people who invented charter schools. And what it essentially is, is that if somebody has a different idea, a better idea about how to educate kids, have a structure that you could try that idea, not in a way that competed with public schools, but in a way that actually supplemented or advanced or trying something new as a way of saying this works. And what has happened, that was the original idea, because you know, as well as I do, that, you know, the bureaucracies of school systems are sometimes really mind-numbing. And if you have an idea about what to do, getting it through that bureaucracy is hard. And so this was Al's idea and a couple of other people from Minnesota, and that was the original idea. What has happened since is it became... Uh, uh, some people who, you know, like the idea, um, particularly, you know, well, let me just say some people who like the idea thought that they could create a competitive system. That's what Eva Moskowitz has tried to do. And that's why there's been real tension because, and I'll say this last thing and I'll shut up, because what happens is, If you have elementary school, say the Cindy Adams Elementary School, and you have a great music program at the Cindy Adams Elementary School, or say you have a great comedy program at the Cindy Adams Elementary School, um, and, and, you know, you need the money for the teacher for the comedy program. But it's not 
one of the things that is required. It's just something that is alluring. What happens is that if that school gets less money, that school may not be able to have that comedy program anymore because that money has been diverted to charter schools. So basically, the fight that you hear in terms of public schools is you want to have charters, fine, don't take the money from the public schools. Do let's have a level playing field. Let's make sure that if you know if that 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 people can fund the public schools and not take the money. Randy, I'll say one do, more do, thing, which is this: can I, I run t- a charter school in the Bronx? I, can I tell you that I graduated? I couldn't graduate high school. They would not give me a diploma. I had the highest rating you can have. But they wouldn't give me a diploma because I couldn't sew my graduation dress. And as a result, I have never graduated high school. So I am living proof that nothing can happen to you if you don't have a college education. That's all I can tell you. Well, I would just (laughs) say that um, that is. But but see what I'm talking about in terms of these rules. Something like that. I mean, think about what's happening and what we should do, Cindy, if you want to get a high school diploma, I can, we can find a program for you and (laughs) I would love to find that and I would love to lift that because that is just completely ridiculous that somebody of your stature and someone who has done so much and has so much lived experience, this is the kind of mind-numbing stuff that make people crazy about schooling and about the rules of schooling. And that's part of the reason why, you know, charter schools were created in the first place, because there has to be some, um, there, there has to be some basic common sense. Okay. If you're talking about common sense, maybe this is not a question I should ask you, but you are so smart and you, and you know so much. Can you tell me, how this could have happened in Harvard, the college professors, and how the anti-Semitism could have been allowed to progress? How is that possible? So this is a bigger... um, You're asking me a lot of big questions. I'm trying to answer them in, you know... I know, I know, I know, I know, but you're so... You're you're Randy, who else can I ask? So this is what I think has happened. Number one... There is a lot of anti-Semitism in the world, and it shows up in different ways. And But there is a lot of anti-Semitism, and there's also a lot of Arab hate, and there's also a lot of racism. And we, as basic human beings, have to see hate. When we see hate, we have to be able to not be bystanders, and we have to be able to... Um, stop it or say it's not okay. I think that the question in terms of what has happened in Harvard, the the conflation between anti-Semitism and anti-Israeli behavior um, is gets murky. And I think that what happens is that there are several different definitions of anti-Semitism. And one of the definitions of anti-Semitism essentially is that if you ever say anything negative about Israel, you're anti-Semitic. I don't agree with that. There's just like, I am a patriot 
about the United States of America, but I got a lot of opinions about who's running the United States of America, and it doesn't make me any less <laughs> yeah. of a patriot if I disagree with Trump or I disagree with somebody else. And that's the same in terms of Israel. But what happens is if all you do is criticize Israel and you don't criticize anybody else in the region, then the question becomes, is that about criticizing Jews or is that about criticizing the Jewish state? And so you have to kind of go deeper. Like, so people get, if you have a swastika up, that's anti-Semitic. People get, if you say death to the Jews, that's anti-Semitic. I think what has happened in terms of the college campuses is this. There are two big principles that we should have on college campuses. One is that there shouldn't be hate. Two is that there should be an ability for people, particularly kids, to express themselves, to find themselves, and, and to protest. That's part of our history and our tradition of free expression. Where what has happened in places like Harvard and Columbia and other places is that we, you can do both. You can fight against hate and fight against anti-Semitism and fight against Arab hate. And you can also believe in free of expression. And what I think happened is that these college presidents were so afraid of being called out by um, a perception that they were suppressing dissent and, and, and that they didn't actually be forthright about both values. So I'll give you an example. Okay. When somebody says death to the Jews that live in Israel, that is anti-Semitism. When somebody says um, we disagree with Netanyahu, that isn't. When somebody says and, and says that the Jews deserved it on October 7th, I would argue that that's anti-Semitism. When somebody says what actually happened that we don't have two lands for two peoples or we need to actually make sure that both Palestinians and Jews have land and rights and things like that, that's perfectly appropriate. So it really is a matter of, I think the college presidents didn't actually say forthright what the values were and instead, instead got afraid. Okay, okay. So are you eventually going to become a senator or a secretary of education? Because everybody talks about you as a possibility. Will you? Will that happen to you? I love what I do right now. And I will, and I do not have any aspirations for anything but to do good work in the way I try to do it right now as the right now as the president of the AFT. What I want to do is I want to go back to teaching. And in fact, um, next month, I'm going to be teaching at Cornell for a few days. I love to What are you going to be teaching? Teaching what? I'm going to be teaching uh, graduate, um, I guess, graduate and undergraduate students. It's the first time that I'm going to have responsibility for a full class again in years. And I'm going to be teaching about labor and about education 
and about how to make change and how to problem solve. <laughs> Listen, I am so glad that I managed to schlep you away from all of these things to get you for a few minutes on the air. Everybody wants to hear from Randy Weingarten. I always want to hear from Randy Weingarten. And tonight, I'm going to have dinner with Randy Weingarten. Is that correct? Yes, Cindy, that is correct, and I really look forward to it. Thank you, honey. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on, Randy. Thanks. Of course. Thank you, Cindy. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Joining me now is diamond dealer Louis Kestenbaum. Louis says diamonds are forever. But let's hope this interview with him doesn't really take that long. Okay, so Louis, the diamond dealer, I'm dying to know all sorts of the. What the hell actually is a diamond? To me, it's only a piece of rock. Yes, yeah, so a diamond is, uh, it is a, it's, a, it's a rock. It's sort of right. Um, a diamond is made of carbon. And it is through pressure and millions of years of time, um, it turns into, um, you know, a piece of rough diamond. Like I said, it's made of uh, carbon. And you cut it into the most beautiful, you know, diamond shape, whatever you like. And that's sort of uh, how diamonds are, are made. But how is it mined? It's always mined in, in, in rock, inside rock, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so it's mined. It's it's. It's a, we call it a piece of rough. It looks, a rough diamond looks like a rock. It's not inside a rock. It is inside the ground, but a piece, uh, but a piece of rough would look like a rock that if me and you were walking down the streets of New York City, we'd both kick it without realizing what we're looking at. Oh, yeah. So it, 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 it <laughs> is, and it's, there's no uniform shape. There's no uniform size. Um, it could be pretty much, um, you know, depending on every, like every diamond is individual, every piece of rough is individual as well. And there's obviously different qualities of rough. There's rough that can be cut into fine diamonds. And then there's rough that is of a lower quality that's used for industrial use, such as cutting a diamond. Because a diamond is uh, the strongest mineral in the world. You only can cut it with another diamond. Well, okay. I mean, I got 8 million questions that I want to ask. But but why are diamonds so expensive? Why not why not rubies or emeralds? Those are all fabulous gems. Why is it only diamonds? So I think what well all those things are expensive. But what I think makes a diamond a little bit more unique and a little bit more special. Well, first of all, it's also uh, a little rarer than the rest of the um, stones that you were speaking of as rubies and sapphires. But what makes a diamond a little bit more interesting and special is that it essentially can last a lifetime due to the fact that it is so hard. They traditionally don't break. Um, and, and if you were to wear a ruby ring, right, it, it will it will have a much better chance of abrading or breaking and things like that. Um, and come on, diamonds are, are the most beautiful thing in the world. No, no, I'm obviously, obviously, it's not that I don't own a few. <laughs> However, I don't understand why a diamond is so very special. It's basically I, just I, a rock. Correct. Yes, I don't have the answer. I think, you know, a long time ago, um, the consumers started liking the shiny things and, and, and buying them. But I really can't say that I know the answer of what made a diamond 
uh, more valuable, more special than, you know, rubies and other, other gemstones. I, I don't have the answer. To me, it's just due to the fact that it's the most beautiful. Um, they're the shiniest. Uh, I, I don't. I can't tell you. You know, hundreds of years ago, what made a diamond just a little bit more important than the rest. I'm sorry. When okay, it, it, there are possibilities of finding diamonds in many parts of the world. Why is so much of it comes out uh, come out of Africa? So that's just where. So yes, Africa is definitely has the the largest uh, supply of mined diamonds. Uh, again, I'm I'm sorry that I don't have that back end answer. It, it it could be, you know, just the ground and and every and the mines that they're in happen to be there. I really don't have the answer okay, of location okay. there. Okay, but yes, they are all over. Did you ever see the Kohinoor diamond? I mean, it's like a a hundred and five carats. I mean, nobody's seen it. It was like two billion dollars. It's called the Mountain of Light, and it's in the the Queen of England, who's gone now, but the Queen of England's tiara. How do they get something like that? Yes, I'm familiar with that. It's a very, very, very famous stone. Um, I won't. I have seen pictures of it, um, and back then it was, it, or still is, probably the most expensive diamond today. I forget how big it is, but it is it is uh, very impressive, very important. It's like a, it's a little larger than anybody's going to buy from you at the moment. It's a hundred and five carats. Correct. <laughs> that is that is something that we could say is priceless. Okay, Louis. What makes a diamond's color? There, some of them come in 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 pink or beige, or don't don't they? Mm-hmm. Yes. So so it's it's um. Once again, going back to when it's in mind, when it's in the ground, it has a color. So once again, going back to the rough, the rough has a skin, and when you when you cut into it, that's when you can see the color. Now, and if you're talking a white diamond, uh, the the whiter the better, of course. And then you could also have a yellow, purple, red, blue, green, um, yellow, and pink are all other colors that diamonds do come in. Um, when it's in the ground um, is when it's going to it, – when it's it's going to come out of the ground a certain color. You can't add to the color, change the color, or anything like that for a natural diamond. What Do, do you work on 47th Street? I do, yep. I'm in the heart of the diamond district. Oh, it's fabulous. I mean, I have schlepped myself through that diamond center enormously. How do you know how that diamond center began? Um, so I believe in uh, sort of when people were immigrating out of uh, Eastern Europe and places, other places, you know, they they all needed a sense, the general center of trade. I don't know how the 47th Street became, but everyone when people immigrated to the country and brought diamonds and brought things of value, they needed to then trade it or sell it, and that's how. 47th Street became a diamond district. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what made it 47th Street and not 48th Street, but um, we needed <laughs> okay. the central location for trading and and selling as well. So, Louis, are are brides to be still buying diamonds, or have they gone to something else? Brides to be are still buying diamonds. Um, the first one's usually the engagement ring, and then they have for their wedding, of course, they have diamond uh, wedding bands as well. So you have a friend of mine, Kevin Drosh, who got a diamond solitaire for his bride-to-be, and he's going to get a wedding band from you, which 
better not be too expensive. What can I tell you? Okay, I'm yeah, going on. But yes. <laughs> I'm, I am going on. Why did you get into the diamond business? So my father was in the diamond business. My father was first generation. I'm second generation. Um, I always found it very fascinating, um, the industry in general. There's so many facets of, of the industry. Um, and the truth is I love what I do because you – to put smiles on people's faces, and you yeah. get to be a part of you get to be a part of such amazing whether it's an engagement or a, a birth of a child, and they buy this thing called a push present, is a gift for the the lady for pushing the baby out, and and just so many great um, occasions that I get to be part of, and it's really it's really interesting and fascinating. Okay, explain to us the conflict diamond. I mean, I I know what it is, but. I'm not sure I can explain it. What What is that? Is that from people who are doing bad things in Africa or what? Correct. Yeah. So, um, you know, when you're dealing with such expensive items, there's obviously things, illegal things and uh, unethical things that could that could go on. And what a non-conflict diamond is, is that when it's mined in Africa, say, the every the piece of rough will get a a, a certificate saying that it was mined without slavery, without terrible working conditions. And then that, that, that documentation will follow the rough diamond as it gets cut. And then to import it, you need the pro- proper documents from, from when they were mining it. So that's how it's called the Kimberly process. And, and that's how diamonds, um, that's how we can regulate and make sure that they're not, that they are conflict free and there's no, you know, blood diamonds in the market or conflict diamonds because as beautiful as diamonds are, uh, human life is a little bit more important and working conditions and things like that. So all it does is what it does is about 2003 is the time they, they, the Kimberly process started. Um, and it just, that's, it's fair working conditions and nobody needs to get hurt or, uh, sick from mining diamonds that you would love to wear. And, and that's sort of, uh, how, how it, how to, the Kimberly process and copper diamonds are. Did you ever lose or drop or screw up a diamond? I'm sure if you if you pulled up the carpet <laughs> in my office, you might find a couple of small ones. Oh, um, really? Yes, I can. I, 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 you know, they, they, they. I've, I've lost a couple small ones. I'm, I'm proud. Of, I try to uh, <laughs> take good care of the big ones, uh, but they, you know, they. Unfortunately, yes, it's a, it's a hazard of the industry. You make a ring with, you know, 500 diamonds in it, and I'm looking at every diamond to make sure it's perfect for my client. And sometimes it pops out, sometimes it goes on the floor, but but uh, they're not. It's usually not such a an expensive stone. Or else Listen, who cleans your rugs? It. Let me find out who cleans your rugs. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting. Uh, do you yeah. still see? Are there still diamonds left on Earth to be found? Yes, yes, there are. That's a great question. Um, I don't know how many, of course, but yeah, there's still there's still new new rough coming in every day. Um, they're still being mined. There are, like you mentioned, there are places other than Africa that are mining them, such as Canada. Believe it or not, people do buy. Uh, people will request the Canadian diamonds to guarantee it's conflict free. So there's there's definitely other places, and there's a lot of diamonds left to to be found. So are the colored ones more more expensive than the than the white ones? Traditionally, yes. Traditionally. Uh, the colored diamonds are more rare, so 
a lot of the diamonds, uh, a lot of the diamond business and a lot of the way the diamonds are priced is the simple supply and demand. So due to the fact of the rarity, like a red is much rarer than a yellow, so a red is much more expensive than a yellow. Um, so it all kind of goes into size quality to, for, the, for the values. But, um, yes, there are, there are different colors, and there's usually the color ones are, are worth more. Okay, I have to thank you. I have to thank you for telling me all about diamonds. Um, I'm interested in the fact that today's people change. They change their old ways. They change their mores. They're not wearing pearls anymore. They're wearing dresses that are just all the way up to their waist. Are they still buying? You said they were. Still buying diamonds? Guys are still giving diamonds to their wives? Yes, diamonds are still very popular. Um, I mean, I've never met a lady that doesn't like jewelry and diamonds. Usually when a nice couple comes into my office, the lady's a lot happier to be there than the, than the man. But yes, as you, and you, you put a good point on, uh, with pearls, pearls are a little less popular right now than they've been in the past. Um, but diamond fashion is very cyclical. So they definitely could come back at any, at, at diamond shapes, jewelry in general is uh, fashion very cyclical. So, I think one day the pearl business will, you know, come back for sure. Okay, Louis. So remember my name in case I drop in to do a oh. little shopping. Okay. Anytime, anytime. <laughs> Close the place down for you. <laughs> Thank you, honey. Thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, Louis. Yes, of course. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. Bye, honey. Bye, bye.